0: Welcome to Doctor Who, panel to panel. This is Jeremy B. your host, welcoming you to episode 161. This is one of our classic episodes, so um, let me give you kind of a rundown of what's going to be going on in this episode. We will do like we always do, by checking out news, seeing what's new in the world of Doctor Who comics, or in the case of the news uh, this time around, uh, something that's not quite comics related, but still very much art related, so we're going to throw it in. And then... This is going to be kind of a short episode, but with a great longer interview, we'll have a chat, uh, a classic chat with Tim Quinn. Tim is somebody who is a big Doctor Who fan. He uh, worked for Marvel Comics back in the day, over on, uh, actually here in the states. But he is also somebody who uh, wrote some comic strips based on Doctor Who. Many of you who are longtime readers of Doctor Who magazine will know his his work with Dickie Howitt in uh, Doctor Who magazine back in the day. So they have a new collection of their comic strips that just came out called Who's 60. And so I thought it would be a great time to go back and listen to this classic interview with Tim Quinn. So I hope you enjoy it. Thank you for downloading this episode of Dr. Who Panel The Panel. I always enjoy putting one together. Uh, happy Father's Day to those of you out there who are uh, dads. Happy, uh, I myself am one, so happy Father's Day from one dad to another. I hope you have a great day if you listen to this on Sunday when this episode comes out. Otherwise, I hope you have a great week. And um, I guess that's pretty much it for my intro. So let's jump into this episode and check out some news. All right, and Doctor Who comic news for this episode of Panel to Panel, Uh, we're going to start out with something that's not really comic-related news, but it is art-related and game-related for those of you who are familiar with the Magic the Gathering collectible card game. For those of you unfamiliar with it, Magic the Gathering is a collectible card game in which you and your opponent portray wizards who are summoning creatures and casting spells to uh, battle and defeat your opponent. Well, they have a series of cards called Universes Beyond, and in the past they've done a series with artwork based on Warhammer 40k, and they just came out with a set based with artwork based on Lord of the Rings. Well, the next series that they're going to be doing is based on Doctor Who, which is why I'm bringing this up. Uh, Starting on July 28th, they are going to do a first look. Kind of a a teaser of what this set is going to entail. But then you have to wait until October 3rd. That's when it's going to debut um, for sale. And then October 13th is when they're going to have their official launch. And my guess is, usually they have some sort of event or events to tie in with this. Which will probably happen on the 13th. Um, But... In the meantime, if you want to get some information about it, if you do a Google search for Wizards of the Coast or Magic the Gathering and Doctor Who, you should be able to pull up information about it. Um, you can also see some of the artwork for some of the cards that will be coming out. They are going to come out with uh, a series of four Commander decks, which are kind of pre-built decks all ready to play and have a Commander of the Army uh, in that. I believe each there's going to be three different Doctors and uh, a Master or Missy, if I remember right. But those Commander decks will be highly sought after, but then they'll also come out with some booster packs or just packs of cards that you can buy that will have various different Doctor Who-themed cards in them. Um, Like I said, if you want more information, go to uh, do a Google search for Magic the Gathering and Doctor Who. Or if you just want to see some promo art or preview pictures of what some of the cards will look like, please go to my website, which is DoctorWhoComics.com, and you can see some of the cards right there on my website. Um, one other thing, it's kind of light on news this week, um, so one other thing I wanted to mention is there is a new book that has just come out called Who's 60. It is by uh, Vikings Press, Viking Press Comics, and it's a collection of uh, Doctor Who comic strips by Tim Quinn and Dickie Howitt. Now, um, in the past, there was another company that came out with a book called It's Even Bigger on the Inside, which was a collection of all the uh, Doctor Who comic strips that Tim Quinn and Dickie Howard had done for Doctor Who Magazine uh, back in the, uh, I believe it's early, pretty much all during the 80s and early 90s. Um, but there's a new company that just came out with a new edition to tie in with the anniversary of Doctor Who, and I believe there's also some brand new stuff in there, and um But if you do a a search for Who's 60, a collection of Who's by Tim Quinn and Dickie Howitt from Viking Press Comics, you can go on Amazon and order it or from the publisher and uh, find it on the internet. Um, I always enjoyed the the strips from Tim Quinn and Dickie Howitt, and this is a, a way to get pretty much all of them complete and all in one book. So make sure you check that out. And if you like comic strips as much as I do, that you order yourself a copy. And that is pretty much it for the news. Let's uh, go into a classic interview. Tim Quinn and Dickie Howitt have a brand new collection of their comic strips out now called Who's 60? A collection of Who's by Tim Quinn and Dickie Howitt. It has been published by Viking Press Comics, and you can get it on Amazon, or if you do a search for Viking Press Comics, you should be able to find it online to order directly manufactured. Um... I had a great opportunity to talk to Tim Quinn back in 2015 about his career and his life. Um, He is born and bred in Liverpool where the Beatles started. He saw the Beatles, you know, firsthand right when they were getting their start. And uh, his career in pop culture and in comics and in Doctor Who um, is is just miraculous. If you follow him on Facebook and see some of the stuff that he has talked about, uh, it's just just crazy. So uh, back, in, like I said, back in 2015, I had a chance to chat with Tim, and uh, I wanted to represent that for you right now, just because with this new collection of the of the Doctor Who comic strips out, I figured it was a perfect opportunity. So with this intro out of the way, we're jumping right into this interview. So here you go. We are going to have a chat with comic writer and all around awesome guy Tim Quinn jumping in right now. Well, it starts in Liverpool.
1: Um, And really, that that explains a lot. Mm -hmm. I grew up in Liverpool, was born and bred in Liverpool, and um, it it truly was, is an astonishing place, highly creative. I was lucky enough to be uh, um, born into a creative family as well. My mum was, um, for want of a better word, completely nuts (laughs) in a great way. One of my earliest memories In fact, my very earliest memory is of moving into a big old Victorian house. I was just about to turn three years of age. Um, Big old Victorian house in in Liverpool Um, and my mum giving me a stick of charcoal and telling me to go and draw on my bedroom wall. I had a bedroom for the first time. (coughs) We'd been living in my grandparents' house until then. Uh And her plan was that she would redecorate fairly soon. Well took her 10 years before she redecorated, <laughs> by, by which time <laughs> came became fairly typical of mum, uh-huh. by which time my bedroom wall and ceiling were covered in all sorts of um, peculiar illustrations. Um, great way to learn to draw. Oh, I bet. A great way to, um, uh, a great freedom uh, for a child, um, especially, you know, in a Victorian house because the walls were big, huge, uh-huh. um, so a lot of room to expand. And um, a good time to start, I think, turning three years of age, um, you know, to to find uh, things of interest um, that might um, might not hit you later on. You know, I think I think a lot changes by the time you go to school, and, and they sort of set you on a um, more orthodox route than perhaps your natural way of thinking would take you. Oh, sure. So were you interested so, in the, uh, like comic books back then? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, again, I, I was lucky in that I had an older brother. He was um, five years older than me. Uh-huh. So um, at that period, he'd have been seven, eight. And um, I used to get lost in the pages of his comic books. And, and here in Britain, we had some great weekly comics that come out every week. Uh-huh. Um, and they, they were there was a wonderful variety of stories in most of the comics. So each comic, unlike most American comic books, they were, um, uh, anthology titles. So the, you would follow the adventures of various characters throughout each title. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. most of the stories being continued next week, <clears throat> but you, that's the storytellers would cram a lot into a single page. Um, a, a great variety of, ways of telling a story both visually and um, in, in words. Um, and yeah, you, you were just pulled in. So I wanted to read before I could read. Um, yeah. <laughs> I, I really wanted to because I wanted to read the text boxes that accompanied these wonderful illustrations. Uh, on top of that, because we were living in such a big live a big house, um we let the top floor to an American family um, who were over. The husband worked at a place called, um, oh good grief, what was it, it was a U.S. um, Air Force Base, Burtonwood, Mm -hmm. uh, which was Mm -hmm. in Liverpool uh, and had been here since the, um, certainly since the Second World War. Um, And he was over, he was a young guy uh, in his 20s with his wife, his wife was 19 and they had a young daughter. Um, And we got on very well with them. It was a touch of glamour because um, if you can picture Liverpool back then, it was still um, pretty blitzed Uh from the war. You know, rebuilding really didn't take place till the 1970s. So as a kid growing up in Liverpool, it was um, a black and white place. There were these Victorian buildings alongside bomb sites, which were very dramatic to see and were, were you know never to be forgotten very artistic oddly um, in fact I always say that Hitler and the Luftwaffe sort of um, well the, the council when they did start rebuilding they made a worse job of it than Hitler had with, his, <laughs> with the bombing because right? yeah. uh, they started putting up these plastic you know sort of shopping malls and and, and so it, mm-hmm. it, it, part of Liverpool then became like any other city um, there was this big push, for some reason, in, by the 70s on, to make every city look identical um, and lose, you know, its true identity. Okay. Uh, Liverpool hasn't completely because it can't because it's it's there's a pulse in Liverpool. Um, I think very the only thing I can compare it to is New York. Um, with the docks and the the, the river running through it, um, and the feel, you know, it's a different kind of city to anywhere else. It's not really on this planet, just as New York isn't really a part of America. <laughs> it's a separate entity. You know? And um, all the better for that, I think. Um, so people of Liverpool think in a completely different way to anywhere else that I've ever <laughs> been. And I, I enjoy that. So... Um, it, it was a great time to grow up, um, and of course, at that period, music was coming out of every doorway um, by the time I was uh, six, seven, eight, nine, um, and it was great music. You know, people tend to think, oh, yeah, the Beatles, they came from Liverpool. Well, yeah, they did, but there were also over 300 other bands who were fantastic at that time, um, and there were clubs all over the place. People would open their basements and just have clubs in uh-huh. Um So guitars, drums, what an extraordinary sound was coming out of everywhere. It was was so full of life and energy, never to be forgotten. And um, I was lucky to be here at the time and indeed get to see the Beatles on many occasions, uh, along with the other bands. Um, So music, along with comics, were defining who and what I was. My schooling certainly didn't. It defined what I wasn't. (laughs) I was to a school, a Catholic school, run by guys called the Irish Christian Brothers. Um, Not a lot of Christianity in their hearts or souls. They were, it was like a Victorian education system still then and indeed some of my textbooks uh, were published printed in the um, 1890s. Oh wow. So even though it was the 50s and the early 60s, we were still being taught Victorian values, Victorian way of thinking. And that jarred, as you can imagine, with what I was seeing outside of the school gates. Oh, I'm sure. uh, Through comic books or, of course, through through wonderful music. And and then the thinking, just the way that these extraordinary people were thinking, like the Beatles, you know, John Lennon had a massive impact on me um, uh, and does to this day, which is what you can probably see behind me. Oh, (laughs) yes. Um, symbols of that alongside where I could take you around this office various Daleks and um, Tardises and all sorts Uh Um, so it's a great time to grow up um, and to figure out who and what you were Um, uh, school didn't help with that I have to say it didn't help at all Um, in fact in my last year at school I was asked what my interests were and I said well I love comic books so I immediately got a real frown from the careers advice teacher. <laughs> I bet. Obviously, I must be um, must have something wrong with me. Um, and I said, music. Um, and I said, I like drawing and I like telling stories. And he said, oh, right. Well, if you go to Lewis's, which was a famous department store in Liverpool, um, they need people to write the price tags to go on the items in the windows, this being, of course, way before computers or any such thing. Uh-huh. And the price tickets apparently were done by hand at that <laughs> time. So this, this was the um, uh, advice of my school, that um, uh, being of an artistic bent, shall we say, uh-huh. I should go and write price tickets in a department store. Apparently you had good penmanship. But, actually no I didn't that's one thing I absolutely did not have and to this day my writing is dire if I, if I look at it yeah, my handwriting I should say not my writing uh-huh. my handwriting is absolutely awful and I have to read it very quickly after putting it on the paper so that I can understand what the hell is this uh-huh. um, so that's something that I've always been fairly ashamed of um, but I recognise that my teachers were, were on a different planet to me and the day after I left school, age sixteen, just turned sixteen, I um on a whim, keep in mind it's the nineteen sixties, so we tended to do things on a whim. Mm-hmm. Um, I got on a coach uh in Liverpool City Center and went up coast to a, a town called Blackpool, a very famous seaside town here in uh, the UK. Oh yeah. And um I I did this because my my elder brother had said, well, what do you want to do? And I said, I don't know, I'm I'm confused. I I just want to do something to prove I'm alive, something with life because school had sapped all energies out of me um, and left me a bit of a zombie by the time I ran out the school gates. Um, And the only thing that came into my head was to go up to Blackpool. I knocked on the stage door of um, the Blackpool Tower Circus and it was opened by a very famous clown of that period. He had his own TV series. Um, he had been with the circus for forty years. Uh, this circus was not a travelling circus; it was in place. Mm-hmm. Um, Britain's most famous circus. And oddly, he answered the stage door but right. in full makeup. So it's like, holy cow, oh, wow. <laughs> this is weird. And he looked me up and down. And he said, "What do you want?" And I said, "Any jobs going?" And he looked again and he said, Follow me. And I went in through the stage door, and my life changed there and then, or my career set off. Mm-hmm. Took me to his dressing room, sat me in a chair in front of the mirror, and painted my face white and put a nose on. Um, got me a costume. And a day after leaving school, I was a clown at the Blackpool Tower Circus. Wow. Um, I mean, uh, uh, you know. Absolutely bizarre in retrospect mm-hmm. that could happen. Um, that night I was with him and his team of clowns throwing water at each other, um, throwing slop, running about the ring, and I did that for a whole season. At the end of which, this clown, his name was Charlie Caroli, came to me and said, "Well, do you know who you are yet?" Because by that time we had had many a long conversation, and he said, "Well, I, yeah," I said, "I do. I know I'm not a clown," and he said. <laughs> You're, you're right there, you're not. <laughs> because I think a lot of people can say, oh, clowns. you know. Either either they're scared of them or or, or they just think they're crap. <laughs> so they're not funny. But they are. The true clown is, whether it's Charlie Chaplin or Charlie Caroli, there's there's a real art to it. Uh, not the kind of people who will turn up at a children's uh, um, birthday party and entertain those children's entertainers who are death to the very word. Mm-hmm. Um, but True Clown is something quite magnificent and I knew that that was not in my making unfortunately um, or fortunately um, so he said well look I'm going into pantomime for the Christmas season and uh, a theatre in Leeds why don't you join me, come up and um, he said see if there's any work backstage and that was the best bit of advice I think I was ever given because I, I went out found this beautiful theatre, it's one of I think it's Britain's oldest music hall. Um, And luckily for me at that time, as well as the pantomime which Charlie appeared in, the BBC would come into the theatre every week and record a very famous television series that ran for over 30 years on the BBC. And it was called The Good Old Days. And the idea behind it was it was a Victorian music hall. Okay. Um, and the audience would turn up dressed in Victorian gear, and the entertainers of today would come on stage dressed in Victorian gear, and it would be like a night at the music hall in the 1890s uh, or early Edwardian period. Okay. Uh, fantastic idea, very simple, but boy, did it work mm-hmm. because of the beauty of the theatre and because. It was an incredible time Um, back then in the musical. Some great music came out of it, and some fantastic entertainers. So there was a lot to pull pull on. Anyway, to cut this rambling story short, I ended up becoming stage manager there. um, And I started writing there. I started writing for comedians um, uh, by the time I was 17 and that that was quite astonishing because the comedians were very kind to me um in that they asked me to do this they they asked me to um, see if i could write a script Mm -hmm. so i started writing scripts which were then performed before my eyes on stage at this beautiful theater and the audience laughed so suddenly i'm growing you know in my belief in myself which is all important um at the same time, I remember we we had delivered to the theatre about a billion comic books to hand out to kids when we did kids shows there. Uh-huh. So these uh-huh. these comic books would be sent to us from the various publishers in the UK, and um, just as freebies to to hand out to kids. So, um, so I started picking up these comics. And, and reading them and realizing that, boy, I love this just as much as I did when I was a kid. You know, I, I absolutely love this stuff. Um, I should have mentioned and I will mention now, I'll go back to the fact, I, I think I brought up that we had an American family living upstairs in my old home. The reason I brought that into it was because um, they, because we got on with them, they allowed me as a kid to go on to the Air Force Base in Liverpool, where I was able to pick up all the American comics. Oh, okay. So this is in the 50s, early 60s. So I was getting all the Superman, um, Archie comics, Harvey comics. um, um, I forget what Marvel were called, Atlas or whatever they were called at that time. Uh Um, And um, really getting a feeling for the US stuff, which I loved as much as the UK stuff. Anyway, back to the theatre. I start reading these these British comics again, and I I start. Into my head comes, God, I could do as well as this. Some of these guys, I could do. So I start drawing and writing Uh and um, give myself a month to try and turn something worthwhile out um, doing a strip a day and at the end of the month I look and I junk about 38 of the things and and send two into a publisher in a place called Dundee up in Scotland and um, at that point that publisher was turning out goodness knows how many comics every week lots of weekly comics Um, so if you got in there you you were in um uh, because you, they were just eating up material yeah. anyway they liked my stuff and they invited me up to dundee and um i left the theater behind although carried on writing for some of the comedians for a while uh-huh. um and um walked into the comic book world oh. so it was again finding something that was. that bleedingly obvious (laughs) you know Uh what do I like in life I like music I like comics I like reading them I like writing them drawing them Uh Um, and um, it it was it it was an extraordinary place to work because um, I was immediately given two characters um, to do every week whose adventures I had followed when I was a kid I mean I was was still only 17 or 18 so Uh I was still a kid really um, but it was great to take these characters over. One being Dennis the Menace. Um, oh really? Who, not not the American Dennis the Menace, but um, there was a British Dennis the Menace, uh-huh. uh, and still is, uh, who was a a stronger looking character, I would say, than than the U.S. one, um, uh, and done in a different way. I mean, uh, it's fascinating. If I remember correctly, the two characters were actually created the same week, or appeared in the same week back in. 1951 or 52 or something, which is quite bizarre then it's the man It's an obvious name, but but um, and and they were both equally successful on both sides of uh, the Atlantic Mm -hmm. Um, So I was very proud to take that over and then more strips came my way and I started creating my own Um, My downfall in a way was that I was horribly slow at drawing Um, uh, horribly slow and at this period, you, you had to churn it out to to make it work. So I was burning the midnight oil. I started writing scripts as well for other artists to draw. Mm-hmm. And I found that was more to my liking because that was great. Suddenly I'm working with these artists whose work you know, I'd loved when I was a kid. Uh-huh. Um, and that felt like a great privilege, um, not only to work with the characters that I'd read, but to work with the artists. Um, so very, very exciting. Mm-hmm. And I learned a lot. In a very short period, um, because really, you know, I was working 24 hours a day or so it seemed. Yeah. Um, And it was fascinating and um, it was a strange place. The the firm were called DC Thompson. They're still out there, but alas, they're not really doing anything of note these days. Um, uh, And they'd been around since the turn of the century, last turn, the turn of the century before that. Uh So, uh, an exciting place to start my comic book career, certainly. But not financially so. Um, They were not the best payers. So, after a certain period, I looked down south to London, where their main rival was based, and sent some of my samples there and was asked to go and see them. Mm -hmm. Um, And the pay was, I don't know, like three or four times higher. Um, So... um, Uh, so my loyalty went out the window because it was nice to have some money Uh, and London's exciting Um, and at at this point I think I started feeling that I shouldn't put all my eggs in one basket and I started writing in other ways for women's magazines Um, which might sound a bit weird today because I think most women's magazines today are absolutely awful but um, magazines back then, and we're talking, I guess, late 60s, early 70s, were, were a different kettle of fish. Um, mm-hmm. A woman's magazine would be bought by the woman of the house, but it, everybody in the house would read it. There, were, there was a general interest. It was more a general interest magazine sure. than just women's mags. Mm-hmm. So I, I was fascinated by that because I'd always been fascinated by the newsstand and the magazines and the personality of every magazine on there. You know, even as a young kid, I loved that. It wasn't just comic books. I loved seeing the personality of something like Radio Times, uh-huh. which was BBC's weekly magazine, um, or magazines like Woman and Women. There would be a real feel to it. Interestingly, most of those magazines back then would have a strip or more than one strip Uh because they recognized that it, again, gave personality to to the magazine. Anyway, I started writing um, features for women's magazines and um, found that that was fun. Um, A lot of those features uh, or some of those features would be interviews where I'd go and interview people who would interest me, um, somebody I've seen on the telly or whatever. Um, and um, just trying to um, have more strings to my bow Mm -hmm. Uh, um, and then there was newspaper strips Um, and and back then I have a dog back then newspaper strips um, most newspapers had a lot of strips and they were great Mm -hmm. a lot of strips. and uh, I was lucky enough to take over two strips in the Daily Mirror and they were very well paid, very well paid um, and uh, one of them was called Jane, which was, had been running since the 1930s, um, and it was a very difficult one to describe, particularly to an American. Um, but the basic idea behind it was it was it was it was this young girl, uh, well, young woman, <laughs> young woman, mm-hmm. who at least twice a week would lose her clothes. Oh, Not really? um, Yet it's a family newspaper. Uh huh. Go- go figure I <laughs> you know when I worked in America and I was doing that strip and um, some of my fellows at the Saturday Evening Post would come in and say what's that Tim and I said oh yeah have a look and they go "Whoa, what is this for mm-hmm. thinking I was waiting for a porn magazine or something uh-huh. um, but it, it was actually um, it was uh, it was a nice adventure strip with comedy in it um, but probably only Britain could turn out something like that. You know, it's long gone now, uh-huh. sadly, um, because we are in a totally different age, <laughs> yep. and um, it, it, it is has become a curiosity, I guess, more than anything. Uh, I was happy to say though that Stan Lee knew it when I first met Stan, and I mentioned um, that I did the Chain Strip. He was well aware of it, oh, yeah. uh, because his wife's English, so I guess he um, knows. Little things like that. Uh Um, So I started working for that, um, and then Marvel Comics opened an office in um, London, and they started reprinting their American mags in in um, in a a weekly format. Uh So you know, by that stage, they had a backlog of material. So much material that they could um, use. Um, and um, they, they decided that it would make sense to instead of just reprinting it as it was to make it blend into the um, UK mo- um, uh, newsstand um, by uh, sort of cutting up the, the magazines that they had and making them look more like UK uh-huh. um, magazines. Uh, which is a good idea and a um, very popular idea because uh, um, it had been difficult to get the American stuff over here. You know, it wasn't, there was no there were no comic book shops back then and there were no real regular outlets for it, um, barring getting onto US Air Force bases, which most people couldn't do. Yeah, a uh, bit of a challenge there. Even back then, it was <laughs> difficult. <to get> <laughs> so, um,. Uh, So it's a great idea and I think it introduced a hell of a lot of people in the UK to to Marvel. Mm -hmm. Anyway, I I approached the the office and I said, look um, how about making it even more British by having a funny British strip in there and um, uh, at that point I had I think about a year or two years before I'd started working with Dickie Howard, um, a cartoonist whose work I loved um, because it was like Nothing else I'd ever seen in my life. I mean, Dickie is unique in his style. Almost oh, definitely. And you either love it or you absolutely detest it. <laughs> um, <laughs> so now I happen to like it. I remember the very day that I came across it, because it was in a comic that I was working for. I hadn't met him at this stage, and I was turning the pages. Here was the usual stuff. This comic book, it was a funny comic, British funny comic, um, and, and the styles in it were pretty much as they had been for the last, 30, 40 years. And then suddenly you come across this new page, <laughs> and he's like, what the hell is this? <laughs> and it was Dickie Howard. Uh-huh. And then I had actually met him at a comic convention, a British comic convention, um, where he turned up, and I knew it was him, because he was wearing a T-shirt that said, I am Dickie Howard, <laughs> which is fairly typical of the man as a, uh, a very keen on self-promotion. And uh-huh. I um, not? Um, so I approached Marvel, uh, in the UK and said, look, why don't you do Why don't we do a um, UK strip? And um, much to my surprise, they said, yeah, all right. And I, <laughs> can you get me something tomorrow? And I, like, whoa, OK, yes, of course. And then I ring Dickie up because he's fast. I mean, he's he's really fast. Uh-huh. Um, and I said, we've got this opportunity to break into Marvel. I said, chances are this is going to last until the readers see it. And then they all say, What is this British rubbish doing in Marvel comics? Uh-huh. Uh, because our idea was that we'd create a a typical British funny strip. Which we did, um overnight. And we we caught it was called I was Adolf's Double. I was Adolf's Double, as in Adolf Hitler. Okay. And it was about this little guy at the um, start of World War One now World War Two, sorry. Um, uh, living in Ramsgate in England, and um, he had I he had the same face as Adolf Hitler. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the whole theme for it was the mix-ups that would occur because of this. He ends up in Nazi Germany, of course, where he's um, uh, and Hitler gets lost somewhere, so he sort of takes over as Fuhrer. But he's this nice little guy. I think the idea came to me because I had just seen some Peter Sellers movie where he played a gardener. Um, and I thought, and, and also The Great Dictator with uh, Charlie Chaplin. So it was, it was kind of pinching ideas from uh-huh, those sources. Um, anyway, much to my surprise, it worked. And we started getting letters from the readers saying they loved it. Um, could we see more? Now, Marvel expanded quickly in the UK. From one weekly, they, they suddenly had, I think it was eight weekly comics. And they also started putting out monthly comics in the UK as well. Uh And they asked us to do a strip in each and every one. Um, And we were happy to oblige. So we were coming up with all sorts of different ideas. Um, uh, One of them was called The Fairly Amazing Spider Hound. Uh It was about, kicked off with, has anybody ever asked what happened to the Mm -hmm. spider that bit, the radioactive spider that bit Mm Spider-Man? Well, after biting Spider-Man, he went and he bit this dog, and this dog ended up with these pants. So, absolute <laughs> ridiculous! Uh, and then we created a superhero team called the Fantastic Four Hundred. Mm-hmm. So the four hundred characters all crammed into. Um, so we we were treading, we were we were heading down um, the British path of absurdity, which appealed to both of us, um, and round about now. Um, Marvel Comics did something incredibly clever they produced the Doctor Who magazine or actually they had done this earlier so they had done this earlier and, and it is astonishing to this day I cannot believe that a British publisher hadn't jumped on the idea of doing the Doctor Who magazine it was blatantly obvious uh-huh. from November the 23rd 1963 that this would so suit a comic book <clears throat> and while there had been strips featured in in uh, British weeklies featuring Doctor Who, and indeed a wonderful series on the Daleks in another comic, uh-huh. uh, nobody actually had the sense to create a whole magazine around it. And it took Marvel Comics to do that, <clears throat> and um, a good job I think they did with it. You know, in those early days when it was a weekly, oh yes. and then came the monthly, and then at some point, and I'm a bit foggy on dates, but uh, at some point. Um, uh, I think Dickie and I came up with, well, let's get in there. And all and, we were asked to, maybe. And we did a Doctor Who strip. And it, it um, was um, uh, appeared again. My feeling was, God, when the when the fans see this, they'll say, what's this doing? It's taking the mic out <laughs> of Doctor Who. Get it out. <laughs> uh, but it seemed to, most people seem to take it to their hearts. Uh-huh. And, uh, and certainly, you know, for me, because I was there in November the 23rd, 1963, watching my telly. <coughs> and clicking through the two channels that we had because we only had two channels at that point uh-huh. um, trying to find something other than reports from dallas and texas you know with with the kennedy situation sure. assassination um and then on comes if you can imagine in that you can imagine how bleak and dark that day was um because you know we love kennedy over here uh-huh. um uh, and it seemed like the world had just gone mad, um, one of those moments, um, suddenly onto the screen comes comes Doctor Who. <laughs> and, and I, you know, to go back to that time before the idea of a police box travelling through time and space had been invented, and to suddenly get this first episode full of these... Uh, this extraordinary central character. Uh-huh. Boy, I mean, you know, that that year was something else here in Britain, 1963. In January of that year, I'd heard the Beatles for the first time. And that rooted me to the spot um, when Please Please Me came out of my radio. Just, uh-huh. I remember stopping, just good grief, what is this? Uh-huh. And the following day going and buying it. Likewise, that first episode of Doctor Who did exactly the same to me. Um, uh, And you know, I thoroughly, I loved that the first adventure took them back through history, Mm -hmm. because one of the things very close to my heart has been history. I always loved history and find it as exciting as the thought of traveling anywhere in outer space. Uh, And it's a gripe of mine that today when Doctor Who travels through history, they seem to have to link it with an alien threat, and I think, why do that, guys? You know, that was the nice variety of the program that you mm-hmm. had these two areas he could travel in. Sure. History and the characters you find there are as exciting as anything out of science fiction, mm-hmm. and as extraordinary as anything. So I, I feel they get that wrong these days. By by, um, uh, it's as if they don't feel that history has enough to give. It does if you do it right. Yeah. But, hey, i'm not doing the program am i um so when when we started off that strip it was certainly done with love and it was certainly done with a fair amount of knowledge on my part mm-hmm. uh, um uh and and uh, and i think dicky dicky had been aware of it as well and followed it on and off through time so um uh we 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 got a kick out of of doing that strip i think he certainly got more of a kick out of that than another strip we were doing at the same time called earth 33 and a third which was basically a three panel strip every week in one of the marvel weeklies uh-huh. um, which um took a look at uh, it was a spoof on different the different different marvel superheroes because dicky had never been into marvel superheroes, so he didn't know who half of them were uh-huh and He was trying to figure out, and of course, we didn't have the internet then, so you could just go for reference and, and figure it out. So, yeah. Uh, yeah, um, that proved a little difficult, and um, is the reason some of his Marvel superheroes look like nothing on earth, <laughs> 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 which for me made it all the more um enjoyable. Uh huh.
0: So, were you like an avid Doctor Who viewer back then? Did you, did, did definitely, you watch
1: yeah, it? Definitely. In fact, I have letters, I have um. Um, a letter from the bbc from um i think it's either march or april 1964 so bear in mind the program's been running a few months by then uh-huh. uh, it's in reply to my letter to them um and my letter to them was asking uh is anybody going to make dalek toys because um i, I think it would be a great idea and this nice letter comes back from the secretary in the doctor who office saying um we think that the will, before the end of 1964, you will be able to find uh, Dalek toys or Dalek construction kits in the um, toy shops. Uh-huh. Uh, and, boy, was she right about that. <laughs> oh, yes. <laughs> the end of 64. <laughs> there was a flood. It was indeed Dalek mania. Um, and, um, you know, that was very exciting to see. Um, so, yeah, and then uh, there was another letter I wrote the following year in 65 when um, – Uh, Ian and Barbara left, and I couldn't believe it. I remember that final episode of The Chase sitting there. What? They've gone back to London. Uh And I immediately, so the program would have ended about, I don't know, 5.30 or 5.45. And I immediately sat down, wrote a letter saying, I I demand that you bring back um, Barbara and uh, Ian <laughs> um, and I got an answer saying, you know, very happy that you enjoyed the performances, blah, blah, blah. Uh-huh. Uh, their place will be taken by Stephen Taylor, played by Peter Purvis, mother, and I, we hope you will enjoy his adventures. So, uh, so yeah, Ian and Barbara were very close to my heart. I, I, that original team was superb. Um, and, uh, yeah, I missed them. And I, I think it's a great shame that uh, the current series has not... Brought Ian back at some point because I think that would be a fascinating tale to tell. You know, right. how do you come back to Earth when you travelled with that uh, extraordinary man mm-hmm. for s- so many years, seen so many things as they did? I think, like no other companion. Yeah. Um, how do you adapt to life back on Earth when you're school teachers? Uh, I th- I think that would be remarkably difficult particularly as a school teacher where you are subject to so much nonsense from the education system (laughs) i I think there's a book in what happened next to Ian Chesterton Uh uh, i would love to read um and the madness of earth as well just the stupidity you know Uh Uh, i mean it's it's bad enough for me i haven't been off planet that i'm aware of but at this age, you know, you suddenly see the same mistakes being made for the third time in your lifetime um, by politicians, by by the world, and it it, it really does end up turning you into a grumpy old git. Uh, <laughs> uh, <laughs> to go on to a better phrase. Uh-huh. Uh, also, I feel very connected to my grandfather, who who um, served in the trenches in World War One, and who told me, filled me with Stories of um, uh, those days, um, back in the 50s, um, and the madness of the world as he saw it. He, mm-hmm. he was—he was poor guy. He was born just at the right time to ensure he had to serve in two world wars, and he never forgave Britain for doing that to him. Yeah. Um, and by the 50s, of I know certainly by the Bay of Pigs thing. He was, when he really looked as if we were heading to uh, Armageddon, he actually said, look, Tim, if if this happens, um, or if there is another war, and if um, you're called up, he said, I will shoot you in both feet because you're not going, Uh, which (laughs) I have to say, I I was a little unsure of that (laughs) as being a a kindness of my grandfather, but I I see that there's his heart was in the right place (laughs) if a little dramatic but (laughs) i would have probably shot myself in both feet first so uh rather than go and carry on with the madness Mm -hmm. which carries on of course into the present with uh, the current insanity raging around the world Uh, not to get off subject or anything (laughs) Nothing wrong with that. So, or- That's Dickie and I doing doing this uh, uh, Doctor Who stuff, which um, we love and which is, is um, I think, the very few people who knocked it. There might be the odd occasional letter, get them out, but get Dickie and Tim, Tim and Dickie out. But on the whole, it was a really nice fan mail that we were getting. Mm-hmm. And, um, then we were asked to do a whole book of it for Target Books, who Uh were the publishers of the Doctor Who novelizations. And that was very exciting. And um, I I think it was around about that time that I um, headed over to America, because I'd met my wife-to-be, Jane, and she lived in in Indianapolis. Um, So I came over, I got got a flight, ended up in New, stopped off in New York, and called in at Marvel Comics, because I was hoping to get some work there. Uh Um, while waiting for my appointment, I um, walked into one of the big um, bookstores, um, the like of which I'd never seen before at that time, because this is my first time in America. Sure. While we have, have big bookstores in Britain, nothing like this is either one of the Daltons or... or Walden Books, or I forget what it was. Anyway, I walk in. Here I am in the heart of New York, so very exciting for a little Liverpool boy. Uh-huh. And I look across the room, and the first thing I see shining out at me is the Doctor Who fun book that by Tim Quinn and Dickie Hart. Oh, really? <laughs> it was like a beacon. <laughs> um, and I, didn't, I hadn't even been aware. In fact, I swear I signed with, with the publishers that it was just for the the rights for the UK. Uh-huh. So we give them rights, not to for the thing to be taken up in New York City or in America. Uh-huh. Uh, but hey. it was like, wow, it was like such a, such a beautiful welcome to America. Oh, I bet. This my book. Um, anyway, then I ended up in, in Indianapolis and on my first day there, I looked in the um, yellow pages under publishers and to my delight and surprise, I found that the Saturday Evening Post magazine was published in in Indianapolis. Um, uh, I knew the Post because I mean, just of its history, you know, it's uh-huh. a magnificent magazine sure. uh, that the best illustrators, the best cartoonists had worked on, the best writers, um, everybody from P.G. Woodhouse to. Um, Scott Fitzgerald, you know, Uh Um, and indeed through the 60s, they'd they'd kept up a a great rapport with the Beatles and featured them a lot in their pages, um, in their stories, um, in in great pictorial fashion. Um, So I I put in a call, uh, which was a real cheek, really, because if you you look at my artwork, Uh I (laughs) feel... It is not of Saturday Evening Post quality. You know, the, the post is sophisticated. Yeah. It's, so, mine is British humor comic. Uh-huh. Kind of. it, it's, got a, it's rough edges, to say the least. But, you know, it's great being young because you think you can do anything. And I'm in America. So, hey, yeah. it's a land of opportunity. So I put in a call, hoping to get through to the editor. Instead, I was put through to the publisher, which is bizarre. Never, That's never happened before or since. And I said, um, this cartoonist from Britain, want to sell a cartoon to you? Uh, and she said, all right, um, um, come and see us. I said, okay, when? She said, well, now. <laughs> oh, okay, this is different. In Britain, it would be like, oh, well, let's see, Yeah, six months from now, you come and see us then. Um, so a dash across town, walk into this office, meet this very peculiar person. Uh, most publishers are peculiar, it has to be said, but this one exceptionally so. And she took my portfolio, flicked through it quickly, <laughs> handed it back. She said, oh, I don't know anything about humor. And boy, <laughs> was that right? I had that later, that was certainly true. She said, but you're obviously from England. Where are you from? I said, I'm from Liverpool. And everything stopped when I said that. She said, you're from Liverpool? And I said, yeah. She said, how would you like to start work on Monday? Uh, Bear in mind, this is my first week in America. Uh I said, well, doing what? And she said, oh, you can be our humor editor. We need humor here. You guys are supposed to be funny from Liverpool, aren't you? And I said... (laughs) word has it that we are yes uh-huh. so, so i said great and i walk out uh to my wife to be who's in the car and jane says so did you sell a cartoon and i said no i got a job
0: mm-hmm.
1: and jane being american said how much and i said bugger forgot to ask that's a good question so I, went back <laughs> in, I asked and it's it's a nice american size salary uh-huh so I come out, I'm on Cloud Nine as you can imagine. I mean, oh, yeah. this is <clears throat> what a great country this is. <laughs> <laughs> you just say, you know, never mind your work, I'm from Liverpool, give me a job. Uh-huh. And, um, and you get, get a job. And it's a job seemingly well suited to me as a humor, because humor was a massive part of who and what I am, I like to think. Uh-huh. So uh, the following Monday, I walk into the office. And um, this this publisher comes running up to me in the foyer. And she says, oh, don't go, don't go back to the editorial yet. I've got to go and fire somebody so you can take their place. <laughs> and sure enough, she <laughs> goes back and she fires somebody so that I can have an office there. Uh-huh. And this is pretty much par for the course as the days go on with this woman. Uh-huh. Very strange person. Um, she, It was her aim to save America from whatever was the illness or disease of the day. And the Saturday Evening Post was quite different to how it had used to be. Um, The best pages were reprinted from older magazines, but the current ones were full of medical features. Um, And she was incredibly determined to save America from AIDS. AIDS at that point was an unknown. Um, virtually. It uh-huh. uh, was a fear in the land. Oh, yeah. People knew of it but didn't want to know anymore. Mm-hmm. So there was an ignorance about it. And, and quite rightly, she wanted to educate people. Um, but on my first day, she walks into my office and she says, Right, first thing I want you to do is to turn out a book about AIDS for children. And I, <laughs> if you put yourself back in that period when, you know, you, I was one of the guys who, yeah, I knew, indeed I'd lost few people um, acting, you know, people in the um, entertainment world uh-huh. uh, who I knew had died through. But uh, I didn't want to know any more because this was like, ooh, this is too big. Yeah. Uh, I, 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 I was happy in my ignorance, stupidly. Uh, anyway, she said, I want you to do a book about AIDS for children. Whatever you do, don't mention homosexuals. And I'm like, what? (laughs) What This This is very weird kind of. um, uh, And you do know that I'm the humor editor. What what the? Uh But I was young and I couldn't speak back because this was my boss of one day. And I (laughs) I wanted to stay a bit longer than one day. Anyway, she went out. out. Oh, and then she came over and she hugged me and she said, I know I can trust you because you're getting married, aren't you? so <laughs> to say the least um, <clears throat> another side of America popping up here. Uh-huh. <laughs> um so I sat for about a day just looking at the wall of my office now I didn't even know where to stop in the meantime she was sending me all material about aids for me to read and it incredibly depressing reading of course <laughs> but uh, I I then quite cleverly, I suppose, realized that, okay, who do I have to pitch this at? I have to pitch it at myself, because I don't want to read this, so how do I make me want to read it? Mm -hmm. And the fairly obvious idea of using celebrity came to mind, uh, which I think is an obvious idea now, but then it wasn't. Mm -hmm. Um, No celebrities had been linked with AIDS, apart from Rock Hudson, and that was just because he had it rather than he was promoting it, isn't it? Uh So I, I... got my address book and i wrote to a few um um celebrities whose addresses i had one being yoko owner um at the dakota Mm -hmm. and a few days later i got a call in my office saying is that tim quinn i said yeah she said this is yoko um yes i will do something for your book um my my idea was that the one thing I felt we could do was to get rid of the stigma attached to the word AIDS. Yeah. Because at that point, there was that massive stigma. And if we could get people, celebrities, to say, yes, I'm backing this, I'm backing this. And my idea was to have on each page of the book a celebrity, something from a celebrity, um, didn't matter what, could be a drawing, a piece of poetry or story, anything that they had to hand. Uh huh. Um, and on the bottom of the page, I'd do a simple AIDS fact, like, um, you can't catch AIDS by hugging somebody who's got it, you know, it, it, as basic as that, sure. I, I felt if we could get enough celebrities in on that, it would be a worthwhile project. <clears throat> well, when Yoko said she'd come in on it, I rang up the LA times we created a story. It went out on the cover of the LA Times the following week. Mm-hmm. And I said that, you know, I'm looking for other celebrities. Bang! The explosion uh-huh. came into the office from everybody and their dog. It was it was fantastic. Um, Jane Fonda, um, Gene Wilder, the cast of Cheers, which was the big oh, wow. show at the moment. Um, uh, extraordinary names. Um... um Charlton Heston. Um, you know, just just as big as you got. Uh-huh. And I sent a letter to Stan Lee at Marvel explaining the situation. Got a lovely letter back from him um, saying, yeah, of course, we'll use Spider-Man. Uh, I'll, uh, Stan wrote a poem about AIDS and um, uh, uh, sent a picture of Spider-Man saying, let's beat this problem. Uh-huh. You know? um, I mean, it's massive stuff um, to put your main character up there. Um and so so that was great, and, and indeed the whole thing was good. This woman, this publisher was uh, very strange in her way of thinking, but it was good for me, I think, to work with her, because it made me think outside the box, yeah. and it's very easy to get in a rut, and, okay, this is what I do. So to have to think outside was, was something I'm very thankful for, her. Um, and I spent several years there. Um, Working on, on various projects, including humor with comic strips because that not only did they have the post, but they had Seven kids magazines as well such as Jack and Jill uh-huh. children's Digest, um, Children's Playmate, Humpty Dumpty magazine um, And I did strips for those um, and I brought Dickie in as well to do strip for one of them mm-hmm. um, so so Again, we we, we we it was interesting, interesting to to start work in America on such a massive, um, legendary magazine, um, and it did open a lot of doors for me to be able to say that I've worked on that. You know, oh, the fair. magazine is, isn't what it was, but a lot of people don't realise that, and um, it is. <laughs> I was going to say it is what it is. Um, which, having just watched Seinfeld, saying that the other <laughs> night, I probably shouldn't say, um, but it it's it's it, it was certainly a great thing to be able to add to my resume. Oh,
0: my resume. Sure. and you know, the, it's one of those uh, magazines that has that title that you know everybody has heard of at some point in their in their life.
1: And quite right too. And and my office was right next door to the morgue. So my lunch hours were a delight. I just go in and grab a couple of magazines and start reading through them. Uh-huh. And uh, you know, it's one of the best magazines ever. Uh, and its history, of course, created by Benjamin Franklin. Yep. Uh, and my office, just outside my office, was uh, a display case with his spectacles and uh, other knickknacks that he had had. And on my wall uh, of my my office, I had this massive portrait behind me of Richard Nixon. Oh, nice. <laughs> Beaming down at me I thought of all the presidents I could have got I got Richard Nixon behind me Which which I kind of liked in my quirky way I thought that's about right Um, But then elsewhere There were Norman Rockwell paintings And all sorts So it was Mm -hmm. was an astonishing place to be And you would see You would bump into Very interesting people In the corridors Um, uh, Buddy Holly's wife one day oh, yeah? was that Pat Boone came into my office. One day and said, "You the guy who works for Marvel," um, and I said, "Yeah, I've done some work for Marvel." He said, "I've got a great idea for them—a um, um, comic strip um, about a group of superhero superheroes who are all handicapped, so they're all in wheelchairs."
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And I, whoa, I, what? <laughs> it, it, was not, it was not an idea that. I could see working," he said. "But they're very special because they've got these powers," uh-huh. and I thought that he was missing missing out. You know, to to make handicapped people special because they have superpower sort of loses the whole point. To I don't know. I, I yeah. just felt that to make that work, you I don't know what you'd have to be. Uh-huh. Um, and of course, he was ultra Christian. Yeah, um, and that was not. Going to work too well with me, um, having been raised a Catholic um, and having run a thousand miles in the opposite direction. Since. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I tend—I have, have a problem with hierarchy. As one of my bosses once said, walking into my office, closing the door behind him, and saying, "Tim, Tim, Tim, you know your problem. You." don't know the meaning of the word hierarchy and i have to say he was completely right Um, and i think most people who come from liverpool don't and we pride ourselves on not knowing the meaning of the word hierarchy Um, particularly in the creative field where we feel we should all be working as one to ensure that the publication or tv series or whatever um, works but um, the hierarchy kind of way of thinking is not one that sits easily with me. Uh-huh. I blame my grandfather. He always thought that from uh, World War One, when he was in the trenches, he always <clears throat> joked about his so-called superior officers. Yeah. Superior officers who hadn't got a clue. Anyway, so there I am at the post. Um, I did a few years there before moving on to Marvel Comics, um, which uh, I worked for a few years. Um, in many ways I I became uh, an editor there I became a head of special projects which was a delight Uh Um, all the while that I'm doing this of course I'm doing the Doctor Who thing Uh every month Um, so that's that's a standard by now Um, but at Marvel I worked on the Marvel music line which um, was um, one of my ideas um, because I wanted to bring music into my life Uh Uh, um, and I felt that if we approached musicians, famous musicians, and said, look, come and um, uh, we, will, we will give you our best artists and our best writers. Create something with them. Then, you know, it might be interesting what they come uh-huh. up with. And the first guy we brought in was um, Alice Cooper. And boy, he ran with that project you know, and yeah. turned out a new album. And a new comic book uh-huh. went with it. It was great, and that allowed us then to approach other other um, musicians, um, such as Elton John and Bernie Torpin, um, the Stone Rolling Stones and the Beatles. So um, uh, it, it, again, very creative, very exciting way of working um, alongside the super, the norm superhero stuff and uh, whatever else that we were we were doing. Uh-huh. It was. Creative time for Marvel turning out a ton of stuff. You go into the office in the morning, suggest something, and it will be up and running by the night. I love that way of thinking, you know. It, um, it was great. Um, uh, outside of that, <clears throat> um, I said that the Post opened doors for me, Marvel opened doors for me. I approached a documentary TV series um, maker in the UK called The South Bank Show, a very famous documentary TV series that ran for about 30 years here. Uh-huh. Um, and I believe it's shown in the States too. Um, and every week they would do a subject on something in the arts. Um, very varied was their selection. And I approached them with the idea of doing a show on the history of Marvel comics because by then Marvel celebrating its 50th anniversary. Uh-huh. And going all the way back to the 30s, Um, Through the 90s, that was one hell of a story to tell. You know, I I felt Marvel captured um, so much of what America is um, from their early stuff in the 30s through the war, of course, where Marvel went to war a whole year before America declared war on Nazi Germany. Uh Marvel Comics had Captain America bopping Hitler on the jaw, which is great. Um, and then through the whole communist thing in the six, uh, 50s to the explosion from Stanley's brain in the early 60s with, with, you know, those amazing characters who are now lighting up the uh, cinema screen. Oh, yeah. Um, uh, and anyway, the, the, I was called into the office, the um, TV office, to talk about this Possible project of doing a documentary, and the, the head guy there said, Yeah, we want to do it, but no, none of our producers know anything about comics. Will you produce it for us? Mm-hmm. Uh, to which, of course, as a Liverpudlian, I said, Yeah, of course. Yep. Look out okay. the office, thinking, How the hell do you do <laughs> But there's nothing like learning on the job, you know? Uh-huh. It's a great, and, and I was given um, a really good budget and a really great film crew, um, camera crew. Um, so <clears throat> it was a doggle and then you know just set up an interview with Stan and other people at Marvel and and, and you tell the story and boy you know it's a, an incredibly visual story if you drop in some great illustrations throughout um, so that got me into making TV documentaries um, in a big way um, and uh, I was able to pitch ideas to this company um, after the success of the Marvel Comics show uh huh um, and ended up at some point in Nashville doing a show on women in country music, which had always fascinated me. You know, <clears throat> Nashville being slightly redneck, to say the least. Just a little bit, um, just a tad. Um, and yet, some great singer female singer-songwriters, have come out of there, and I, I, I was fascinated to know how they coped with <clears throat> with um, that. Um, and tell their story, so this was round about the period that Mary Chapin Carpenter and Nancy Griffith and uh, Kathy Matea Mm -hmm. were having great success. So I zeroed in on on those three and uh, told the story through them, but Uh uh, of course the visuals again in Nashville um, were were very strong. Um, And I found Nashville reminded me very much of Liverpool in the 1950s. Um, getting music coming out of every door wherever I stopped to eat mm-hmm. I'd be approached by the waiter saying will you listen to this yeah. you know <laughs> getting into music um, fascinating place um, had a ball there um, so yeah all, all the while I'm doing this I'm still doing other comics um, writing them, editing them um, at some point start my own publishing company with um, um, a partner and um, and uh, with Dickie, we had, I think we worked together for about 20-odd years, um, and, and boy, did we turn out a lot of material, which um, I hadn't realized quite how much we'd done until I was approached this year by um, this publishing company who wants to gather together all the Doctor Who material we have done. Oh, yeah. yeah. book. And I you know I was delighted to hear that surprised because I thought who's going to get that uh-huh. but um, there seems to be a nice level of interest in it which I'm, um, and I was sent about a third of the book the other day, oh yeah and it's like I started scrolling down all these strips and I'm halfway through the third and I'm thinking how much did we do? <laughs> you, you, you just you totally lose sight of how much we did because you know we didn't just do the week the, this the, the, the three frame strip every month we added we did pages all over the place as well and lots of other doctor who material uh-huh. so I'm, I'm so happy that it's all being gathered together apparently there's either going either also going to be a deluxe edition which sort of blows me away it's um, uh I love it. I and mean, It's made me start looking back at other stuff we did and, and wishing some other publisher would come up and gather that together because I don't know how. <laughs> <laughs> we, we really did do a lot. If there was a magazine out there, we'd approach them with with an idea for a strip. Um, it's a great time to be working because magazines were very open to that and you could make a lot of money by turning out a lot of material um, that, um, you know, for weekly and monthly magazines. Um, and and I think we were the right age to be able to do that, Dickie and I, at that period. So we did did an extraordinary amount of stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, every so often, Dickie will send me something. Remember this? And I'll look and I'll go, no. <laughs> there's my name on it. <laughs> what the heck was that? Um, so, yeah, you know, you <laughs> It's a I guess. You know, you suddenly realise um, you, you've got quite a few years behind you, uh, during which you were working. Um, and and I was delighted in looking at this material, the Doctor Who stuff, to see that it's good. I mean, it is really good. A lot of it is actually. Oh, I agree. A lot of it is actually funny, or should I say, a lot of it is almost funny. <laughs> uh, so, so that helps. Um, And I I love Dickie's drawings. You know, there's nothing like a Dickie Dalek, Uh as we call him. Um, And his take on the Doctors is superb. Um, uh, And and also interesting to see that I do occasionally put the boot into the management of Doctor Who, Uh uh, who were, like most managements, Certainly in my life, I've found myself working, um, I've I've been lucky enough to work for some great companies, but usually when you're in there, you find the creative people are up against the management. The management, in most cases, haven't got a clue. Um, Marvel Comics is a good example of that. Marvel was, you know, came to fame thanks to Stan Lee and his creations. And then it came to enormous fame and consequently was eaten up by conglomerates who hadn't got a clue what they had. Um, uh, and aren't the best people to be in control of it? If they just had the sense to, oh, God, look, we'll buy that and we'll let them carry on doing what they're doing, uh-huh. that that would be great. But they don't. Conglomerates usually buy something up and immediately put their people in over the creative people and... Uh, make their own ridiculous decisions and then the marketing people on top of that, and the marketing people are usually um, a bunch of half wits, they really are, I I, I I remember putting one magazine together at um, another publishing company, it was my first day there and it was a magazine I was looking forward to working on and my wife when i set off to work that day had said now remember just take the money at the end of the month don't get involved <laughs> and i nodded and here i was in this meeting and i had this marketing person saying tim here's an idea i've just been speaking to the marketing person at sainsbury's which is a big super um, uh-huh supermarket over here um and She said that they put a yellow stripe down the edge of their generic boxes of all brand cereal and it made it lift off the shelves. It's sold out. It's done really well. So I'm thinking, could you try putting a yellow stripe down the edge of the magazine? (laughs) And I sort of nod. But then she turns and she's looking at me and she says, what? And I said, what? She said, "That look on your face." Uh-huh. So obviously, I was betrayed by my face. My face was obviously screaming. Uh-huh. Never yep. heard anything <laughs> so stupid in my life, but it is the it is the nature, unfortunately. And the marketing people and the management are um, you, well, yeah, they're usually in the offices above you, with the carpets and the curtains yep. on the windows, while we're with the floorboards down on the editorial uh, uh, side. Um, and it's it's nuts um, and so much time is wasted and um, it's it, it's very wearying having to deal with, with that nonsense side. Mm-hmm. I remember when I was just working freelance before I decided to get in as an editor. And my, One of my reasons for wanting to get in as editor was because I couldn't understand some of the changes that were being made to my work. And I thought, well, if I get in, I'll figure it out. Mm-hmm. I did get in and sat in then on editorial tables, and I realized, ah, now I know why. It's because they're all idiots, (laughs) (laughs) which is a view that hasn't changed with me down the years. Uh And has been uh, a lot of idiots out there.
0: Yeah. Yeah, it seems like that's the way it goes, is that you have the bureaucracy trying to steer something in the direction they want it to go, which doesn't seem to make sense, especially from a creative aspect.
1: Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And, and part of the reason they're doing that is because they have to be seen to be doing something. Mm-hmm. And that's the problem. And I've actually had somebody above me say those very words. Well, I have to be. This beautiful piece of artwork had come in, and I, I was very proud of it. It was from an, an artist who'd been in the business for ages. A beautiful piece of artwork, <clears throat> a, a comic strip page. And I showed it to my superior. Officer. Mm-hmm. And she said, Oh, let me have that. She went away with it. She came back and she had circled forty seven different things on that page in red. And I said, What's this? She said, He needs to uh change those things. Look, that leg's not right. That arm is now this the artist was a guy who'd been in the business forever right. and could draw a table and make it look exciting. Yeah. This person had sort of goodness knows where she'd crawled out of. Um, and I said, you must be joking. And she sort of looked both ways and she said, yeah, well, I've got to be seen to be doing something, haven't I? Uh-huh. I tell you, I could have throttled her. Um, but it, it is, her, and I rang the artist up and I said, look, I'm really sorry, but this is coming back. It's not my doing. And he said, don't worry, Tim, I'm used to it. Yeah. This is what we get. Uh-huh. Um, idiotic. Um, the business could be so much fun. And, and I have had great fun in it, you know, despite the fact that I moan a lot. uh uh-huh had enormous fun working with some wonderful, creative people from Stanley to, to lesser known people, but, you know, joyously creative people. Um, and there's nothing like it at all. Um, it is a hoot and a blast. And I'm very proud of the stuff Dickie and I did together. Um, and delighted that people remember it happily, you know, I mean, that's, that's great to get suddenly you'll get some old codger come up to you and say, Oh, I used to read your stuff when I was a kid. Uh And I'm like, hang on. (laughs) If he was a kid and he looks like this now, how am I looking? Uh uh, um, But it is, it's, um, it's, it's really nice. It's, it's great to, to have that in your past. Um, Today, I'm working pretty much hundred percent in um, music, um, which several years ago, started to take over my life. Uh Because, again, of my upbringing in Liverpool, um, I became an agent and a manager to um, uh, an American musician initially, and then various other people that I've been lucky enough to work with, members of Led Zeppelin, Rolling Stones. Um, Today, I have um, uh, the most fantastic musicians I've ever come across in my life. This isn't managerial bullshit. they simply are. They they are extraordinary. They they just turned 20. They're twins. They're from Austria, but they're now living just down the road, here in Merseyside. Uh uh-huh. um, They're called the Mona Lisa twins, and they they have a I've got them a residency at the Cavern every week, so they play there every Saturday. Mm-hmm. And a lot of people who were behind the Beatles originally um have come in and said god these guys are great these 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 guys have what um what the beatles had and they're taking it on further so they're thinking in the same way the beatles thought back in the 60s but they're taking it on into this new century Uh which is wonderful to hear because the beatles indeed were an inspiration to these two girls uh, and were the inspiration that made them pick up their guitars and play in the first place um, so a lot's happened, I've been working with them for the last six months, just six months now and it's it's extraordinary, their, their work is all over YouTube uh, Mona Lisa Twins, you can follow their career from age 13 wow. through the grand age of 20 uh-huh. about to release a new video which they showed me last night um, it's still top secret but it'll be, be out there <clears throat> any week now and the effect it had on me was um i think it was 19 when did 2000 what the hell was the name of the movie 2001 2001 A A space odyssey yeah. yeah um i don't know how old you are jeremy but um if you were around when it came out oh yes i was around ah right well if you went to the cinema to see it you'll know it's quite an experience because there was nothing like that uh-huh. that had been before yeah um this video that um the girls brought around yesterday and they do everything themselves. So they write their own songs. They do do covers as well, but they turn those songs into their own, Uh but write their own songs. They come up with storyboards for their videos. They film their videos. They perform in their videos. Um, they edit their videos. They do everything. Oh, well, this video, this particular video, um, gave me the same effect of walking out of the cinema after seeing 2001 in 1967 or 68, whenever it was it came out uh-huh. um, uh, except it's better <laughs> it's, it's, <laughs> it's, like, it's like brought down to six minutes um, it, it, is, it is astonishing it is, and, and all these 1960s terms like mind blowing and far out uh-huh. immediately come to one's mind the most beautiful thing um that I've ever seen. But their, their videos are a real treat. And um, if you have any liking for sixties style music, um take a look at the Mona Lisa twins on YouTube. Definitely have to look uh-huh. them up. A lot of sixties artists are actually asking to record with them now. We've got John Sebastian from um The Loving Spoonful uh-huh. wants to record with them. And um Peter Noon from Herman's Hermits. Yeah. Uh, Melanie um so it's, it's, it's like a tip of the hat to these girls. So the, the people who were inspiring them initially mm-hmm. are now being inspired by the girls, which is, is a great way of uh, uh, a great sort of turnaround, as it were. You know, very, very exciting. Oh, that's awesome. Well, it's good to hear that you're uh, keeping busy. <laughs> so there's a reason for me blabbing on at that about, <laughs> that I do this. Um, there's a nice comic book connection because, do you know, Charlie Adlard? Have you yes, heard of, yep, oh, the, the Walking Dead artist. Well done, you. Charlie, Charlie actually came to me years ago when he was 18 years of age. He had heard me on the radio doing an interview and he said, um, Have you got a minute? Can you give me a minute? Um, I can't make up my mind whether to be a rock drummer or a cartoonist. Can you take a look at some of my work? And I looked at his work and I said, Well, forget the rock drumming. Uh, this is fantastic. You are natural. You know, you've uh-huh. got a great style. And we actually sat down that day and created a strip that started running in a national paper here. Um, so Charlie's first work was with me. Oh, yeah. Um, and then he went through the roof, of course. He'd st- and then he started at Marvel UK mm-hmm. and uh, got into America and, and of course, The Walking Dead. Anyway, we, we've been great friends for years, and um, I introduced him to the Mona Lisa trends a while back. And he said, wow, I'd love to do a T-shirt design for them. So Charlie's latest work alongside The Walking Dead is to design a t-shirt for the Mona Lisa Twins which we have on oh, our merch. Really cool. And it is very cool. I mean and I love this I love mixing things like that. This is a bit like when I was at Marvel doing the novel music line uh-huh. people <coughs> like Alice Cooper and so on come in and create with us you know yeah. it's it has been creative and it's great. And we've got another great guy called Lalit who um, works for a company my brother has been an editor for in Delhi in um, India uh-huh. yes. a great company called Campfire Graphic Novels Campfire Graphic Novels for me they're the best comic book publishers today oh, yeah. they're sensational and they're doing they're going about it in in the way comic book publishers used to go about it they're, they're doing a variety of publications so they're not just relying on superheroes mm-hmm. or. This. they're doing all sorts of ideas that come into their, their heads and Lalit is one of their best artists. He, he recently did a book on World War One, which really captures the whole story um, in one comic book. Fantastic. Anyway, he's now creating a t-shirt for the twins as well, so uh, I foresee that we'll have a um, variety of t-shirts before, <laughs> before too long with uh-huh. famous cartoonists. I've yet to ask Dickie to do one, because I fear that the Mona Lisa twins might not be too happy with his <laughs> rendition of them. <laughs> more suited to drawing tim quinn and dickie howard than the mona lisa twins Uh Um, who knows where we might go in the future now so so that kind of brings it up to date i guess um i i do travel around the uk i have a show that i put on in theaters a one-man show me on the stage big screen behind me and i tell my story Uh i tell the story of comics so the history of comic books from cave wall drawings up to the present, uh-huh. and the second half of the show is my story: how I got into comics, what I found there, and I, I'm—I collect memorabilia everywhere I go. So I've got my office is full of junk, uh-huh. and I've utilized that in the show up on screen. You'll see stuff that we worked on at Marvel Comics that, in the end, was pulled before it went out. Yeah. So, for example, I have. Uh-huh. A, a Spider-Man cover that was deemed, no, that's too sexy, it can't go out. So the too sexy Spider-Man cover is only seen in my show, which I love because uh-huh. it's too sexy, yep. <laughs> <laughs> it's too uh, and lots of other stuff that that didn't didn't get uh, didn't make the cut, as it were. But it's fascinating to see. Mm-hmm. So um, I've been doing that show for a few years now, and played it about 200 times. About to do it again mm-hmm. in a couple of weeks and um that's a lot of fun obviously i tell um the story of my work with dickie in that Uh uh-huh um and i think that just a bit brings us up to date really Uh, obviously there was a lot more in those years that escapes my mind at the moment but (coughs) i have a feeling that it's probably more than enough (laughs) Uh no problem you it sounds like you're a very busy person
0: uh still and I, I'm somebody that started reading Doctor Who Magazine back in the late 80s, and uh, I definitely finally remember yours and Dickie's uh, comic strips, and I'm looking forward to the collected edition that's going to be coming out from Milk Publishing.
1: Yeah. Yeah, no, I think it's great. It's a nice publisher as well. <clears throat> I think the stuff they're turning out is fantastic. Um, and, and it's great to come across publishers like that, you know, who, mm-hmm. who've got the passion and the enthusiasm for the product. are doing it for all the right reasons. You know, this is the problem when you, you, you work for companies that have been taken over by conglomerates. Yep. But they're not in it for the right reasons. They're in it just to, I mean, we all need to make money and we all want to make money. But it's where you know you have to break those targets that you hit last year, and then next year you have to break the targets again. It yeah. you know, becomes madness. It, it's insane. Nothing can, nothing can, you can't sustain that. Yeah. Uh, and it's a stupid way of thinking. And all love for the product goes out the window when when you work in that that stupid way, um, because any career has to go up and down, up and down, up and down. Any product has to go up and down. You know, Captain America is a great example of that, and it's ups and downs, and ups uh-huh. and downs, and it's highs and lows, um, as is really any any character or product or, or that has any longevity to it. Yeah. Um, but you know, if it's a good product, Doctor Who's best example, of course. Uh-huh. You know, when you look at the ups and downs that has had, you know, um, it is it is. Uh, astonishing, but what makes it work is what was in that first episode back in '63. Yep. It's the premise, it is mind blowing to this day. The very thought that you could step into that box and travel through time and space. Um, I, I love it, and that excites me as much today as, as it did in that opening episode. Um, fantastic, it's the unknown,
0: can't beat that. Yeah, definitely so. Well, Tim Quinn, thank you very much for joining me today. I found your your story fascinating. Uh, there's You've had a very varied and interesting uh, career, and I look forward to seeing what comes down the pipe from you.
1: <laughs> I look forward to it, too, because uh, <laughs> there was a famous opening to a TV series here in the 60s, and I love this opening. <clears throat> it was for one of Jerry Anderson's um, puppet shows. Uh-huh. Uh, called stingray and it would open with these words S- um stand by for action anything can happen in the next half hour uh, that so sums up the 60s to me uh uh-huh. did happen in the next half hour yeah and it's it's something that i stole and i i used to put that on some of the magazines i would edit um stand by for action anything can happen in the next 36 pages uh-huh um, it's a great line and um yeah who knows but yeah i i think uh A lot will be happening in the next year, particularly with these uh, wonderful Mona Lisa twins, who for me are sheer delight. Um, As you can imagine, to walk down into the cavern every Saturday night, it so links me with my early days, you know, in the 60s. Oh, yeah. Um, And now to have, you know, this band that I love up on the stage and the crowd's going crazy. Uh Uh-huh can't be that. It doesn't get
0: any better. I hope you enjoyed listening to that interview with Tim Quinn. He is a very entertaining guy. Uh, He has a lot of great stories to tell. Um, He's been around in comics and uh, pop culture fandom forever and a day. And uh, I, I enjoyed listening to this interview all over again. I haven't listened to it since it came out back in 2015. So I hope you enjoyed it. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Doctor Who Panel to Panel. I want to bring a couple things real quick. One, uh, please check out my website, which is Comics.com. Every Monday and Thursday, I have a page of artwork from the Ten Doctors uh, fan-made comic strip from Rich Morris. It is a great story, especially if you love uh, all your Doctors all in one spot. This is a comic strip that he made back in the David Tennant era. And it features all 10 doctors lots of companions lots of villains and it's a great story if you like uh animation style storyboards chuck jones type art uh, this strip is right up your alley like i said a new page comes out every monday and thursday on my website Just so make sure you check that out also uh doctor who art and comic related news i always put up on my website as well so please be sure and check out doctor who comics.com uh one other thing Make sure that you go to archive.org and do a search for Jeremy B. Mint or Doctor Who Comics uh, or Doctor Who Panel to Panel and you'll find all my past episodes of this podcast as easy to download mp3 files. You can find lots of classic interviews there, ones that I haven't represented yet. Um, Also, all the episodes up to date are on there as uh, mp3 files for you to download and I hope you check that out. There's lots of good information on there, lots of good stuff. And um, I guess that is it for this episode. Thank you for downloading this. And in a couple weeks, we'll have another brand new episode. So until then, this is Jeremy B. saying bye. Doctor Who Panel the Panel, the podcast about Doctor Who Comics. Thanks you for downloading this episode. Let us know what you thought about this episode or of Doctor Who Comics in general. You can find us socially on Facebook at Doctor Who Panel the Panel on Twitter at Dr. Who P2P, two being the number two, and online at drwhocomics.com. Download previous episodes via your favorite podcast service and find the complete catalog of episodes featuring amazing interviews with creators past and present at archive.org. Just search for Dr. Who panel to panel. Thank you.